Well, hey everyone, my name is Steve Ingold and I'm the Livermore Campus Pastor and I'm here today with my friend Marvel who is a part of our international group at the Cornerstone Livermore Campus. He's been a part of that for a few years, right? It's been almost uh, three years. Three years. Yeah, and, yeah. And, and, and you guys I've been, have been... I've been coming here since 2016. That's great. And, yeah, so and awesome. every time you guys meet, you gather, you break bread together. We and... used to do that, but right now we're doing everything virtually. Right, right. Know, so, but we still meet on a Sunday, on a, like That's a awesome. Zoom, you know, every Sunday, right? Yeah, I, I used to stop by when you had food. I don't know why those are the only times I stopped by, but, but I did. Um, but no, it's, it's so cool to see different cultures come yeah, together. And, beautiful, beautiful. And just to, to see how you guys do that is, is incredible and I always feel so, so gracious that you welcome me and invite me in. I'm so grateful for that. But uh, man, we haven't seen each other for like three and a half months. Three and a half months, yeah. Time that's, flies. That's crazy. It's almost so good to see you. Faster. It's almost, yeah, it's really good. I'm glad we got a chance to do that. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Uh, it's almost July. And uh, summer's, summer's approaching, and summer looks a little different this year, so uh, <laughs> do you guys have any plans as a family that, that you're going to... You know, we definitely had a lot of plans for this year, but all these things happens now. So now the plans are like, and we're definitely not flying this year, right. but you know, we're thinking about taking maybe some day trips. There you go. Maybe to Monterey, to Half, Half Moon Bay. My son loves the beach, so you know, we thought you know, maybe th this might be a bit, you know, good time for us to just... Travel to the seaside. Yeah, we might we might have to join you because my son loves Absolutely. loves the beach. We'll, we'll socially distance yeah. and everything, which the beach is a great place to do that. But uh, but yeah, it's 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 weird that we're in summer right now and mm. it doesn't feel as much like normal summer. And you know, schools maybe starting back up in a month and a half or something. We don't we don't know. It'll be interesting to see how things go. But but it is good to be with friends and and even as we've gone through this last month of the series that we've we've been in. Listen, learn, love. Where we've talked about an issue that's very prevalent in our society right now, um, <clears throat> and people are listening in in new ways. And it's been so exciting for us as a church to talk through racial reconciliation together. I've had a lot of conversations and meetings with folks that uh, that are either struggling or or really having um, just they're just processing in different ways mm. and. I love the fact that we've been able to have Zoom calls and Zoom meetings and just process together. And, and it's really just the starting point for us as a church as we look at racial reconciliation through the lens of the gospel of Jesus Christ and how we enact change uh, for people groups that have been oppressed and marginalized for centuries. And last weekend we had Dr. Brenda here. If you weren't able to watch that message, I know it was Father's Day. And uh, I hope you have a chance to go back and watch her sermon. It was such a good starting point for us as a church when it comes to racial reconciliation. But as we end this series, this is the last weekend of this series, and as we end, we're trying to figure out what's the best way to end this type of series, and we said, you know, taking communion as a family together, as a church family together, is the best way to end. So that's what we're gonna do. Do you have any advice for anyone as we look at taking communion toward the end of this service? Yeah, I would say if you have some crackers, if you have, a, if you have some juice with you, or even some bread, you know, just join us with uh, that mm -hmm. to be part of this communion. Yeah, yeah. I think you mentioned earlier that maybe some cake would be good. Yeah, you know, if you have some cake too, you know. <laughs> I wish I had cake matter. in my house. But uh, no, I think last time we did communion, my family, we had chocolate milk and goldfish crackers, which <laughs> don't go well together. But find some communion <laughs> elements now. Get ready for that. We're going to do communion at the end of this service together. But to kick off today, we're going to begin with some worship. Let's all worship together. So as we start to sing today, church, we're just gonna cry out, like the kingdom of God come here on earth. 
And as people who follow Christ, it's our responsibility to bring the kingdom of God wherever we go, to usher in the kingdom of Jesus here on earth, that it would be as in heaven. Let's sing together.
Surrender. 
Hey, thank you, worship team. That was awesome. And uh, I, especially that part at the beginning of the service where you had uh, quite a few, it was like 10 or 15 minutes of worship before the service even started. So man, I really enjoyed that as well. You lead us so well. So now it's the time in the service where we worship the Lord in a different way. And that's by giving back to him from the resources that he has blessed us with. And we're blessed so that we can share. And Cornerstone, you do that well. And I want to encourage you to keep doing that. Now, it used to be that we would pass the, we had baskets and buckets and bags, depending on which uh, auditorium that you went to uh, during the service. But now we can't do that anymore. So the way we do it is digitally. And so this is the time where we, we pass the basket and ask you to give, but you have to do that digitally now. So get out your phone and, uh, and, and donate money to your church. Now, a lot of us just give regularly, and we've set, our, we've set our accounts up for regular giving. And so thank you for doing that. We would really appreciate if all of you would do that, because that would be a very easy way for you to press our mission forward. If you've never given to Cornerstone, but you benefit from it, we want to challenge you to start chipping in and uh, start helping us pay the many expenses of our church. And if you've been giving for years, we want to say thank you. Uh, your giving is really accomplishing a lot. Let me tell you a couple of stories, one locally, one globally. This week, uh, yesterday as a matter of fact, we mailed a check for $10,000 to the Alameda County Food Bank and another check for $10,000 to the Contra Costa County Food Bank. These food banks are so efficient in the collection and the distribution of food that if we give them $10,000, it multiplies to about $70,000 worth of actual food going out. So $20,000 was $140,000 that you gave to people that are very hungry in our county, our very own neighbors that are hungry. We've also got neighbors across the, the, the globe in Kenya. And uh, so we years ago partnered uh, with folks in Nakuru, Kenya, especially students. And we pulled these kids off of the streets and they were, they, were, they were even children in street gangs and they were starving to death and they were part of these gangs. We got them into our schools, um, got them off of drugs and led them to Christ. And now a lot of them have graduated from college. A lot of them uh, are married. They have uh, businesses of their own and some of them are still in school. We're still supporting them. You probably know about that. If you didn't, you could support a student still. But in addition to that, because of COVID, the shelter-in-place rules are so strict in Kenya that many people are at home and cannot get out to work, and therefore people are literally starving to death in their homes. I don't just mean they're hungry. I mean people are finding them they have starved to death in their own homes without a scrap of food. Recently, um, our guy there in Kenya, Daniel, who's this awesome brother in Christ, he was at our office. He came out of the office and he saw a woman laying there just outside the door. He went over to her. She had a little baby uh, that was laying there beside her and, and a toddler that was just kind of walking around. They were all three alive, but barely. He brought her in, got her some fresh water. There was some, a little bit of food there in the office. Found out she was starving to death, didn't have any food, was out trying to scrounge some food for her kids. He, he, he went to the grocery store, got some food, called a taxi. The taxi driver took her, her with groceries back to her house. When they got back to the house, the taxi driver was helping them into the house and he snooped around the house a little bit and discovered 
There was not one can of food, not a box of crackers, nothing in that house. So he came back to Daniel and told him, and Daniel made sure that she got her pantries filled with groceries. And now they're just checking on her and making sure she's gonna be okay. Listen, that's just one family, but that one family matters to God. And he loves him so much. And we don't know what the story is gonna be with those two little kids that, that survived this or their mom that survived that day. But I just wanna thank you for your gifts, small and large. They make a difference. So please keep giving to your church. If you've never donated a cornerstone and yet you're part of our fellowship, I wanna encourage you to start today to donate. And if you donate every now and again, I wanna encourage you to sign up for regular donations to your church and together we will make a difference. Speaking of making a difference, uh, it's time now for our final sermon in our series, Listen, Learn, and Love. And I wanna thank you. Today we explore the topic of corporate or communal responsibility. Like, if I'm not racist, does the story end for me there? If I personally don't have, have examined my heart and I don't see a lot of prejudice or bias, then, you know, then is it just someone else's problem? Or does the church say, no, we are still going to do work, even those of us that don't consider ourselves to be any, in any way part of the problem? Are we going to work towards helping our, our brothers and sisters who have told us that they have struggled do we have a responsibility to help them? Prayerfully consider that as Pastor Chris Stockhouse preaches now. My mom's parents had a house up at Clear Lake. Many of my favorite childhood memories are family time up at the lake. However, not all of my memories from being at the lake with grandpa and grandma were positive. You see, my grandpa was explicitly racist for most of his life. On occasion, some racist things would flow out of his heart and mouth towards African-Americans, sometimes using the N-word. I remember one specific night, the 10 o'clock news came on and there was a story of a black man who robbed a store and there was some sort of a manhunt and I think he shot at police, etc. I remember my grandpa saying something to the effect of that and he said the N-word. What's wrong with these people? Why do they always cause trouble? My grandpa was able to recognize that there was a struggle in the black community in America and his way of explaining that struggle was to assume that black people were somehow inferior. I hate that this is part of my family's story, but I can't avoid it. Before I unpack the rest of my story as it relates to my grandpa, I'd like to start with a Bible study. We're gonna take a quick look at three different scriptures that are helpful in getting us in the right mindset as followers of Christ for the conversation we're having today. Let's first look, take a look at Joshua chapter seven. Let me give you a little context. The Israelites had just crossed into the Jordan, over the Jordan and by God's power defeated the Canaanites. They're finally in the promised land. In chapter six, God had given them a specific instructions that they were not to plunder and they were not to take any of the accursed or devoted things which were instruments of demonic worship used by the Canaanites. So in verse one, Joshua chapter seven, we read, but the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things, 
Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zimri, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took home some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. So here we are, the very next chapter, and sure enough, this guy named Achan takes some of the devoted things that they were commanded by God not to take. So God is angry with them. And as the Israelites go out to their next battle, they get routed and they have to flee the battle. Joshua and the Israelites are really confused. God was supposed to give give them this land. How could they lose a battle? So they cry out to the Lord asking him why. And in verse 10, we read, the Lord said to Joshua, stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. As you read on, you'll see that God calls for an assembly of Israel. And within that, God calls forth Achan. And Achan confesses his sin of stealing the forbidden things and hiding them in his tent. Achan was stoned to death and his family had their possessions taken away. Now, this story begs a few questions. First of all, why did Achan's whole family get punished so severely when it was Achan's sin? And and similar to that, why did God repeatedly say that the whole nation of Israel sinned against God when it was only one man who committed a sin? Well, in order to answer this question, we need to understand an important biblical concept. Most biblical scholars refer to this concept as corporate or communal responsibility. Corporate meaning a whole group of people, not a corporation. And communal meaning a whole community of people. Throughout the Bible, we see how God more often than not views sin through a communal lens. It's true. Sin is also viewed by God based on a personal, individualistic lens. However, more frequently, God views sin through the communal lens in Scripture. Now, let me define some of these terms a little bit more. It's important for us to understand the difference between communal thinking and individualistic thinking. Individualistic thinking is this. You, it, it's, you rise and fall based off of your own actions. It's about personal responsibility. In any situation, your first thought is, how does this affect me? Communal thinking, you rise and fall based off of the environment and relationships within the community. It's about group responsibility. In any situation you ask, how does this affect the group? If you were raised in America like I was, you were raised with individualism as your primary cultural way of thinking. It's a deep part of our society. Really, there hasn't been a more individualistic culture in the history of the world than American Culture. The majority of cultures throughout world history, and even the majority of cultures that exist around the world today, live with a more communal mindset. One thing I want to make clear, however, is that individualistic thinking is not in and of itself a bad thing. Neither is communal thinking. Both cultural approaches create positive outcomes, and both create negative outcomes. Additionally, both perspectives are true in any circumstance. When something happens, there's always a personal and communal responsibility in play whenever anything happens. But what's important for us today, though, is the reality that understanding the communal way of thinking is really important to understanding your Bible. Because every culture that is described in the Bible operates out of a communal mindset. And as I said earlier, God more often than not views sin through a communal mindset as well. Most cultures around the world would not be confused by the story of Achan in Joshua 7. 
Communal responsibility makes perfect sense because that is how most people are raised. But as an American, man, this is a difficult concept for me to grasp. Let's look at another example in Daniel chapter 9. We read an amazing prayer from Daniel who was so faithful in obeying the Lord's covenant. Daniel prays starting in verse 4 of chapter 9. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commands. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and rebelled. We have turned away from your commands. And Daniel goes on for quite a while describing Israel's sin. And every time he uses the word we. Now, individualistically thinking what Daniel is praying is not true. Daniel was not wicked. Daniel did not rebel. Daniel did not consistently break the Lord's command. Daniel wasn't even alive when some of his ancestors committed some of the sins in which resulted in him getting exiled to Babylon. Why is Daniel repenting for sins, some of which were committed by his ancestors? Well, if you view this text through the lens of individualism, the text won't make much sense. However, God is not viewing things individualistically, and neither is Daniel. They're viewing things communally. Daniel knows that if some in the nation of Israel lead Israel astray, then they all have gone astray. They all will be considered guilty by God, and they all need to repent. Daniel also understands the reality of how sin has a generational impact, oftentimes over the course of hundreds of years. The pain and the results of sin don't just go away when the individuals go away. The results carry on communally for generations. The Apostle Paul takes this, the reality of communal responsibility even further several times in the New Testament, but let's just focus on Romans 5. In Romans 5, Paul talks about how the sin of Adam and Eve makes every human guilty of sin and the righteousness of Christ makes every human forgiven. Let's read verse 18 in Romans chapter 5. Consequently, just as one sin resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Well, we could go on through scripture, but that should be enough to give you an idea of how prominent the theological theme of corporate or communal responsibility is in scripture. God sees how the actions of a whole culture produce someone's sin. Let me use a modern example to help continue to make this point. Let's say you're addicted to shopping. That's one of your primary sin struggles. When you get down, you fill that hole of emptiness inside by buying things, and it temporarily feels great. But after a while, it feels bad, especially after you have a conversation with your spouse and realize you don't have the money to pay rent because you spent it all on clothes. You, you recognize the problem as sin. Now, as an American, you see this as your sin. You are the only one who made a decision to shop and spend critical money on things you don't need. That's your sin problem, which is true. However, God views the sin problem more broadly. God sees the corporate greed, the deceiving advertisements, the friends who encourage you to just take, take care of yourself, to get some me time, to do whatever you need. God sees how the systems of the whole culture, in addition to your personal struggle, combined to create that sinful habit. It's a communal system that creates widespread sin and injustice. 
At the surface, it looks like individual poor decisions, but when you dig deeper, you see that sin always flows out of systems within the culture. Oftentimes, these systems are not visible. You don't really know they're there. This way of thinking is so foreign to me as an American, but if I want to more deeply understand the Bible and God's consistent point of view regarding sin, I have to do the hard work of understanding communal responsibility. Here's where I'm going with all this. Racism in America has always been America's largest communal sin. However, when we only view this sin through the 2020 individualistic lens, we're likely to miss the point. If you're saying racism is wrong, I agree, racism is wrong, but I haven't done anything racist, then you're missing the point. But if we can step back, try not to get defensive, Take a historical and communal look at this problem throughout our country's history. We have a better chance of developing a gospel-centered compassion and empathy for everyone, especially those struggling right now. As you begin to learn about communal sin, you'll begin to discover that there are degrees of responsibility within the community when sin Exists. Let's go back to the story of Achan in Joshua 7. Achan steals the forbidden stuff, but the whole nation is viewed as guilty by God for his sin. They're held responsible on different levels, though. Let's take a look at these levels. There's three different levels in this story. So level one responsibility is Achan. He's the one who committed the greatest sin. He's the most guilty, and his punishment is the greatest. He's stoned to death. Now, level two is a little bit lower, his family. They're also guilty, but they're not as guilty as Achan. But they knew that he stole this stuff because he hid it in their tent. It was sitting in their tent. Scripture lets us know that that it's likely they knew it was there. They didn't do anything. They didn't say anything. They were complicit in his lying and stealing. So they're also guilty, not as guilty as Achan, but they're guilty and they have all their possessions taken away. Level three guilt uh, is the, all of the rest of Israel. They're also guilty because they're in the community that was a part of this, even if they didn't know what was going on. And their punishment was they lost the battle with I. Okay, let me just give one caveat here. Um, in order for us to understand the communal responsibility levels, in order for these to make sense today, I need to quickly address the fact that in this particular example, this is old covenant stuff happening. In the new covenant, God does not punish people like he did under the terms of the old covenant. In the new covenant, our sins are forgiven by the blood of Christ. However, that doesn't mean we're still not guilty of sin, including communal sin. When it comes to American racism, what level of communal responsibility do we each have? Are you level one guilty or are you level three guilty? Now, a couple of comments on this self-evaluation. First, we typically are not great at self-evaluation when it comes to our role in sin. We typically, all of us, I do the same thing. We give ourselves a lot of grace until conviction of the Spirit comes along and we have an oh shoot moment, a moment where we begin to see the depths of our sins. I've had many of those moments where I thought I was fairly innocent until I had to be smacked upside the head by the Spirit to see the log in my own eye. The second comment I'd like to make about this is 
to say that these levels of responsibility within a community, they're not static. One moment you could go from level three to level one and then back down to level two for a while, depending on the circumstances we find ourselves in. One thing that I've discovered um, that I've realized is unhealthy in myself and in American individualistic Christianity is our understanding of repentance is lacking. Most Americans, myself included, we repent for our personal sins and then we're done. However, biblically, we shouldn't stop there. We're instructed to repent not only for our sins, but for the sins of our family, the sins of our community, and the sins of our nation. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to take a posture of repentance that is communal, not just individual. Okay, here's another concept uh, that's important for us to get clarity on. The reality of systemic injustice. It's a biblical concept. Systemic injustice has existed in every society throughout history around the world to varying degrees. There are too, there are too many examples in scripture for me to count. Um, you could read Acts chapter 6 for one real small, quick example in the New Testament. But let me give you a couple examples to describe what systemic injustice looks like in our day and age. I'll start with a, a small example that Tim Keller used, one of my favorite pastors, in one of his sermons. Uh, he told the story of there was a series of car dealerships that had a demographic study done on who they sold cars to and at what price they sold the car for. Now, it's important to understand that the system the dealerships had in place at the time gave the salespeople a window for pricing in which they could sell the car. So they knew they couldn't sell the car for more than this, and they couldn't sell the car for less than this. So there was always room for the customer to negotiate. What the study found, though, was that on average, white men paid the least amount for their cars, and black women paid the most. The owner of the dealership was a Christian white man, and he was not pleased with these results. As he dug into the situation, he genuinely believed that nobody on his staff was intentionally trying to disadvantage black women. Nobody was doing this on purpose. However, the point Tim Keller was making in this story was this. If the result is unjust, the system is unjust, regardless of anyone's intentions. So the owner changed their pricing strategies to ensure that all people paid a fair price for their cars. His profits went down a little, but his faithfulness and commitment to the gospel went up. Even though the owner never intentionally did anything wrong, he was still part of a system that was creating an injustice, so he had a responsibility to do something about it. He was thinking communally. Broad injustice requires systems to be in place to maintain the injustice. One-on-one -on -one injustice doesn't require systems. If I hurt you, that was just personal. But injustice that is widespread across culture requires systems to maintain it. And if the system isn't changed, the injustice won't change. Let me give you another example to think about. Um, let's look at NCAA sports, specifically NCAA football. This is a multi-billion dollar industry of which over 95% of the people profiting at the highest levels in this industry are white men who are making tens of millions of dollars. These are owners of TV networks, university deans, athletic department leads, coaches, etc. Now on the flip side, they get to profit so much partly because they have an essentially free labor pool. 
the majority of whom are young black men. Now, at a minimum, the optics of this are terrible. But we know there's, just, there's more than just bad optics. There's corruption in this industry. What are the chances those profiting the most from these systems want the system to change? They don't. They like things the way they are. Most people in power do not have the integrity or awareness of the car dealership owner. So what do we do about this? How do we create change? How do systems of injustice get torn down if the people benefiting the most from the injustice want the status quo? Those questions, these questions are super complex, and I encourage you to do your own research on them, to find your own answers yourself, but I do want to pick one truth in this reality that can provide a great solution for us and I think leads us into some positive action steps. In, in, in order for any large-scale system that creates injustice to continue, the majority of the population have to remain ignorant or silent or turn a blind eye or feel not responsible or prefer the status quo for the injustice to thrive. I need to say that again. Let's rewind that. Because I, I really want this point to sink in. Okay, in order for any large-scale system that creates injustice to continue, the majority of the population have to remain ignorant or silent or turn a blind eye or feel not responsible or prefer the status quo in order for the injustice to thrive. This is a primary ingredient that widespread injustice requires. If you take away this ingredient, you eventually take away the injustice. If NCAA football fans stay in the mindset of, eh, it's not that big a deal, I don't mind it that much, there's nothing I can do about it anyway, then the injustice will continue. But as soon as a majority of them say, wait a second, what's happening here? This isn't right. I'm not going to another game until something changes. Guess what happens? Things change. The number one thing you can do to help fight injustice is to not be ignorant, silent, don't turn a blind eye, and don't assume you're not responsible. If, you, if your posture towards injustice changes in those ways, you will be able to make a difference. We will begin to make a difference. This is our next step. Some of you have been asking for next steps. There it is. Now, one of the things that really confused my grandpa and other members of my family is the reality of how black people struggle in America. He saw this struggle from a distance and had to reconcile consciously or unconsciously why that struggle exists. The reality is that even today, over 150 years after slavery, black people have a more difficult time statistically relative to white people. We can look at any number of hard facts. Economically, the statistics are the bleakest. The income gap and wealth gap between white and black households is staggering and heartbreaking. But we can look at educational levels or pick another category and you're likely to come face to face with the reality that in America, black people struggle more than white people generally speaking, on average. This is a reality that everyone I talk to, black and white, left and right, agrees upon. Now, here's where it gets dicey, though. 
we have to ask this uncomfortable question. We have to ask, why do black people struggle more in America, generally speaking? Why? Or why do a percentage of black people huddle together in the projects in cycles of poverty and crime? Why? One thing I want to make clear, though, before I move on in that question, is I'm not saying that every American individualistically should have equal outcomes in their success. By the nature of our system, some people succeed to greater degrees than others. However, when on average a whole category of people are struggling, especially the majority of an entire ethnic group on average, we have to stop and ask why. So let's do that right now. Now let me help you out a little bit with the answer to this question by letting you know that every single potential explanation you can find or I can find for this struggle fits neatly into one of two categories. There are no other categories logically other than these two. The first category of explanations is this. The black struggle is due to external to an external problem. External factors have disadvantaged black people in our country relative to white people. An example of an external struggle or an external factor would be uh, slavery. Black people had no control over the fact that they were taken from their homeland, all right? So that would be an external factor that disadvantaged black people. Okay, the second category of explanations for the black struggle would be this. The black struggle is due to an internal problem. Black people, generally speaking, are more genetically limited when it comes to their ability to thrive in society. Or another way to say it is they are inferior. The asking and answering of this question gets right to the heart of the issues we're dealing with in America. This is where the rubber hits the road. For centuries, though, white people have spun a narrative that has decided that the problem is interior for black people. As Europe began discovering how profitable the African slave trade could be, they began creating propaganda that considered Africans closer to apes than actual humans. The same evil propaganda continued in America. In order for white Christian slave owners to justify biblically their evil, they convinced themselves that black people weren't fully human. Therefore, the scriptures don't apply. Therefore, they were biblically off the hook to treat black people that way. This line of thinking continued into the Jim Crow area and beyond while white families didn't want their kids to be held back educationally by the mentally slower black children. So they needed to ensure the school stayed segregated. And this same line of thinking continued to be propagated by my grandpa, who wondered out loud why black people couldn't just pick themselves up by the bootstraps and make something of themselves like my grandpa did. Why are they so lazy? He wondered, why did they get bad grades in school? And he just assumed they were stupid. He wondered, why did they appear to commit more crimes? He figured they were just criminals. That same evil, racist line of thinking has been passed down from white father to white son generation after generation. So as a church, we obviously reject the internal problem explanation for the black struggle and believe that the gospel rejects that position very clearly as well. 
We affirm that all black people are created in the image of God and are equally capable of thriving in our society if they're given equal circumstance. But there is still confusion on this in the church. I still hear people talk in ways that communicate it's an internal problem within black people. Now, many of the people I talk to who do this, they don't know their opinion is labeling black people as inferior. And they're horrified when they come to find out their opinion does that. And I empathize with you because I've been there many times myself. Here's a few examples of explanations of the black struggle that I've said in the past, and you may catch yourself saying from time to time. One example is, um, you've probably heard of this before. Uh, It goes something like this. The problem is that black fathers leave the home at way too high a rate. If we could just get black fathers to stay in the home and raise their kids, we could solve this problem. Okay, I've thought this. I've, I've probably said this. But do you realize when we say this, it sounds like we're saying that black men are not as good at being fathers. There's something wrong inside of them which comes off as you labeling them as inferior. Whether you meant to do that or not, that's how it comes across. Okay, let me, let me give you a different example. We say, sometimes we say, uh, why don't they pick themselves up by the bootstraps? If you work hard, anything is possible in America. Look at Oprah. She worked hard and nothing prevented her from succeeding. Okay, when we say this, we're implying that black people are lazy, which is a way of considering them inferior. Okay, the, the third thing that, we, and there's so many of these, I'm, I'm just picking three. Um, I've said this and I still hear this a lot. Um, we say they've been brainwashed by the liberal media into a victim mentality and that victim mentality is causing them to struggle. I, I've said this, but I, over the years, I've come to realize how offensive this is to most of my black brothers and sisters. Is the majority of an entire ethnicity stupid enough to be brainwashed into victimhood that does them great harm? No ethnicity would do that to themselves. It it makes no sense. And it's clearly considering them inferior. I even know a few black people who say this and they say it without fully realizing they're categorizing their own ethnicity as inferior. So hopefully you could begin without getting overly defensive um, because I'm right there with you. Hopefully you could begin to see how easily it is and even unintentionally we can slip into explanations that fit the internal problem category. And when we do that, the Holy Spirit has to convict us of our thoughts and words that run counter to scripture and the heart of God. I've had to repent of this so many times on my journey of understanding the black struggle, a painful journey that I started in 2007 when I adopted the first of my two black sons. Now, if we firmly and biblically reject any explanation that even slightly resembles an internal factor explanation, then the only other explanations we have that explain the black struggle is that there are external factors that disadvantage black people, generally speaking. 
It's the only legitimate, non-racist, and biblically faithful answer to the question. And it's factually true throughout American history. So what are these external factors that disadvantage black people? That's an amazing question that unfortunately we do not have time to begin to dig into today, but I wanna send you on that journey. Here's another next step for you. This is a journey of learning. It's a journey I've been on uh, for quite a while now. And there's so much to dig into. We have hundreds of years of American history that has negatively affected the black experience today that we can study and learn from so that we develop a more gospel-centered compassion and empathy. Fortunately, when we see external factors that disadvantage a people, we have a lot of instruction in the Bible on how to respond. When your eyes are open to injustice, the gospel only gives us one direction to move in. The way we do what love requires is to do whatever we can to bring an end to that injustice. That's part of what heaven coming down to earth is all about. This is exactly what Jesus was talking about. Okay, we've covered a lot today and in this series, but um, I want to I want to remind us of, of four things that as a church we are solid on. We agree upon as a church. The first one, external causes are creating the black struggle in America, not internal. Internal runs counter to the heart of God. The second thing is that our ignorance and silence of the average American is essential for injustice to continue. So we will not be ignorant or silent anymore. The third thing is we acknowledge that being silent or ignorant to the external causes of the black struggle were part of the system that allowed injustice to continue. And so we repent of that sin. And the fourth thing is with the biblical theological concept of communal responsibility firmly in our mind, like Daniel did, we all take responsibility for this national sin. So where do we go from here? This is the end of a teaching series, but it's just the beginning of a journey where we remain more gospel-centered on the issue of racial reconciliation than we have been. We, I honestly, I don't have all the answers in terms of what's next for us or an exact roadmap for you. And I actually need to apologize to you because I should have done more over the last few years to push our church forward in regards to racial reconciliation. I should have pushed our church to have a task force helping guide us and steer us on this issue, which we're beginning to do now. I should have uh, provided more training for our staff on this critical issue, which we will begin to do now. I should have pushed us a long time ago to identify some missions partners in the community that are doing great work in this area that we could have been partnering with all along, but we're gonna begin to do now. I pray that you would accept my apology. And I ask, I actually give you my permission to hold our whole team accountable to do better as we go forward. The last year or two of my grandpa's life, his heart began to soften to the gospel. 
I don't know if he officially accepted Jesus as his savior, but I like to think that he did. During his season of softening, in fact, about eight months before he passed away, he got to hold his first great-grandson, a beautiful 21-month-old black boy named Isaiah. I don't know everything my grandpa was thinking as he was holding my son, but I like to think that his prejudices were washing away in that moment. That as my son smiled back up at him in his arms, that he saw the image of God in that boy. And that if my grandpa had the chance, he would fight against any injustice that even had the remotest possibility of holding his great grandson back. Even the injustice in his own heart. So as I leave you, we're going to enter into a time of communion. And I want to invite you into posturing your heart with mine in a posture of repentance, owning the communal and individual responsibility we have as Christians to repent and lament for our sins, the sins of our nation and the sins of our church. I love you guys. We're going to take communion soon, so have your elements ready. This series and the conversations that have taken place have all been so important. And I would like to believe that we've all taken away from this series what it was meant to do, to cause us to pause and listen. There's always a takeaway when we listen. And there's always something to be learned when we listen. I've been on the receiving end of not being heard a painful experience. I think it's safe to say that we've all been there before. But I've also been on the receiving end of having someone listen so intently without saying a word. And the level of care and love that that makes one feel is important. It's special. It's love. I've learned a lot through this series and I think we've all been challenged in some way. But my hope is that the challenge doesn't leave a sour taste in our mouths but rather one of Jesus creating a new thing in us, maturing us, and helping us grow in our faith and understanding of what it means to be who we truly are, children of God, followers of Jesus. And so we're going to take communion together as a family, as one body, a communal response of communal repentance, self-examination, personal reflection and remembering the sacrifice made for each one of us. Jesus would create a new thing that last Passover dinner with his disciples. He would flip the script on something so familiar and so comfortable, but all would be done to bring unity, to bring us together, all done in the name of love. And so he took the bread He broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread.
In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. It is shed for, for the forgiveness of sins. And they drink from the cup. Let's drink. This would have been so confusing for the disciples, I'm sure. And maybe you have been confused. Maybe things got a little shaky for you during this series. Just like with the disciples, Jesus would have never wanted them to be divided over their lack of understanding or confusion. God would send his only son to a cross to die for all of us imperfect human beings so that we could have forever and eternity with him. And he would include every person And if that isn't the definition of love and unity, I don't know what is. And so we're going to worship. The song is called For the One, where we will ask God to show us what it means to have compassion, what it means to love, what it looks like to be kind for the one, whomever it is that God is putting in front of us. Let's sing. Let me be filled with kindness and compassion for the one the one whom you loved and gave your son for humanity increase my
to end this series together and uh, uh, I really appreciate the church um, for taking us through this journey. Mm. Pastor. Yeah, you know, it's been interesting. I've been so challenged by this and so I'm thankful for all of us going on this journey together. I know you've gone on this journey mm-hmm. and all of you watching have taken a posture of listening and learning and loving over the past four weeks and I'm just grateful. I'm grateful that that we're starting this conversation. And I think it's important for us to remember that this is not a sprint when we talk about racial reconciliation through the lens of Jesus Christ. This is a marathon and we're just getting started. So we're gonna continue to talk about this. We're gonna continue to figure out how we can enact change in our communities and beyond. But also, uh, you heard some of the next steps that Chris laid out at the end of his sermon, that we've got a task force that we've put together to see which Uh, different churches in our community we can partner with, which organizations we can partner with, who we can learn from, what we need to do as a leadership, as a staff, how we, how we need to train and lead, uh, even within our own, within our own staff and within our own leadership team. So that's the journey we're going on. And we hope that you continue to join us in that as we all ask the question over and over and over again in every single situation. What does love require of me? What does love require of you? What does love require of all of us? And you can also check us out on uh, Beyond Sunday, which is actually, it's more like an extension to the series in what we've been hearing. So it happens every Monday at 7 p.m. It's on YouTube, so check it out. Uh, It definitely is going to give you a lot of insights there. Yeah, that's a great resource. I encourage you to check that out and join us there on Monday night. And then next week, we're kicking off a new series. You know, with everything going on in our in our current cultural climate and everything going on in our society. We've got you know, potential economic recession. We've got uh, the racial divide that we've been talking about for the last four weeks. And COVID is still very much yeah. a thing. And that's causing a lot of anxiety and fear. But 
the question we're attempting to answer through these next few weeks of this series is what are we anchored to? Are we anchored to fear? Are we anchored to what we see and hear and read out in the media or, or on Facebook or Instagram or social media platforms? Or are we anchored? Are we anchored in the hope that we have in Jesus Christ? How do we do that? How do we respond like that as a church, as followers of Jesus? We hope you'll join us next week for that. I'm so glad you were with us this week. Marvel, man, I'm glad we had an excuse to get together. I know, absolutely. <laughs> like this, but it's so good to see you. Thanks for being here. Mm. We love you so much, church. So glad you are part of the Cornerstone family, and we hope to see you soon.